Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to have you all here. Um, it's good to have Dennis and Beth and Hollander with us again this morning. Welcome. It's also good to have uh, Brian and Beth Newswanger, which we would know through Fairhaven School. So good to have you here today as well. One of the things that I've been enjoying and appreciating over the past couple of weeks is there's been some stories of faith from Mine Road Church that have been trickling into my inbox in various ways by email and by handwriting and other ways. And I have a number of stories. I'm still waiting on a few more. There's at least one more that I'm pretty sure I'm going to get yet and uh, a few more that I'd like to get. So I do plan on making that Preparing that for my next sermon, uh, Lord willing, to talk about some of the stories that I've been collecting. Toying around with the idea of just pushing that off for a while because it's been quite interesting to get stories coming in. So keep them coming. I look forward to hearing them and to uh, sharing some of them in a few weeks. I also want to put a, put a note in here about men's seminar yesterday. A number of you were there, and I want to... Th- Give my thanks to Dave King for organizing that, to Floyd and Tim for having some of the sessions there, and to Jared for leading the songs. I was inspired and challenged, and I think one of the things that I was surprised by is there's a number of passages that I was planning to share this morning that were shared yesterday as well. But I suppose, you know, it's some repetition is probably good uh, from time to time. So my last sermon we talked about, we looked a lot at the story of Lot and his life, and his interaction with and within the city of Sodom. And we looked at the dangers of living in Sodom or even making a move towards Sodom in how we think and concluded that by definition, where we find ourselves today has many similarities to the city of Sodom. And I believe we need to take the warning very seriously to remember Lot's wife and What was her mindset? What caused her to respond in the way that she did? But today I'd like to shift our focus just a bit and look at the opportunities that we have by living where we are, at the location that we're at, in this time in history, in our lifetime. You see, while it's critical that we take care that we aren't influenced by the mindset of Sodom, and the culture around us. It is also critical that we are influencing the culture around us. And I found found Romans' um, talk this morning to be inspiring because that is one way that we can be influencing the culture around us. That there's so many opportunities that we have, so many ways that we can do that. Um, And that is is one way that, that we can be involved and we can influence rather than having... The culture influence us, we can influence the culture. And so the title of the message today is simply a question, and the question is this, confrontation or assimilation? Because I believe that we are doing one or the other. I believe that we are doing one or the other, moving in one direction or another in relation to our culture by what we do, by the way that we think, by the way that we talk. Now, confrontation is a strong word, and it has the idea of of being hostile or being argumentative. 
conflict, battle, fight. But I pick this word because I think from, from time to time, and, and, and I could stand up here this morning and say I picked it for myself. Because I think from time to time, the way that I respond to situations, do I really believe that their goal, that the goal of the culture around me is completely opposite of the goal of the people of God? Do I really believe that? And so I picked the word confrontation for us to think about this morning. I want us to remember that the goal of the culture around us is completely different, completely opposite than our goal as believers. However, I also want to highlight and note that we are to confront in meekness, and that might seem impossible, but I think Jesus is a really good example that Jesus confronted constantly, but he did it in meekness. And so that's what I want to encourage us to do. So as we think about confrontation today, let us have Jesus be our guide in that area. Assimilation, on the other hand, and here's the technical definition. So there's going to be some wordiness here, but it refers to the process whereby individuals or groups of differing ethnic heritage are absorbed into the dominant culture of society. The process whereby individuals or groups of differing ethnic heritage are absorbed into the dominant culture of society. Now, in Bible times, this was often done by force, or at least it was attempted to do by force. But what the people in Bible times found was that the most effective way to assimilate another culture into your culture was to introduce to them and have them follow your gods. That was the easiest way. If you didn't do that, they were going to fight back. They were going to worship their god. They were going to remember their land, and they were going to fight back. So the easiest way to have them assimilate into your culture, if you captured them, if you took them captive, was to have them follow and believe in your gods. And this is why I believe it was so important for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to not bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. See, they realized that that wasn't just an act. That wasn't just something, a point-in-time act that they did. If they would have bowed down, what they would have been doing was acknowledging and worshiping another god besides their god, and they understood and recognized very clearly that that would have been the start of assimilation into the culture. Now, I want us to think a little bit more about how we interact with, with the world around us and look at a few themes in Scripture to guide us this morning. In Bible times, one of the keys was the worship of gods. You got them to worship your gods, and you assimilated them in your culture. Now, we don't do that in the same way today. We don't sacrifice. We don't bow down to idols. But I believe we still have similar challenges. And I believe the biggest challenge for us and for this generation today is the misuse of what has been given to us. And we might say the worship of what has been given to us. And so that's one of the things that we'll focus on today. So the first theme is this. God does not give us what we have only for our benefit. God does not give us what we have only for our benefit. And we might even say God does not give us what we have for our benefit at all. James 4, 3-4 makes this clear. 
James says it this way, you don't have because you don't ask. And even when you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking it just so that you can consume it upon your lust or you're asking with the wrong motives. And so the principle there, I believe, is when we ask with the wrong motives, we won't receive. If the motive is selfish, don't expect to receive. Jesus told the parable of the rich man in Luke 12, 16 to 21, illustrating a man who had financial success. And what did he do with his financial success? He planned to tear down his barns and build bigger because he said to himself, you have plenty laid up for many years so you can take it easy and relax for the rest of your life. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? What if you had plenty that you could just put on a pile and relax the rest of your life? Now, I want you to think about it. Is that theme anywhere in our culture today? Did you read any articles this week that talked about retiring early? Is that a theme? Is that something that we hear about, see about, financial gurus in our culture talk about, people retiring when they're 30 or 35 or 40? But God said this, Thou fool, this night your soul will be required of you then, who will have all these things that you have laid up. So what's the principle here? When you have success and abundance, what will you do with it? Whoever stores up things but is not rich toward God will lose what he has. Another principle is found in Luke 6, 32 through 35, that gives us the principle of not only giving to those from whom we can receive in return or from whom we would expect to receive something in return, Anyone does that, even unbelievers, it says, but particularly giving to those who either won't repay or, un- or are unable to repay. And there's a variety of areas that it talks about there, giving love, doing good, and lending. When was the last time that you gave love to someone or that you did good for someone or that you lended to someone when you knew that that person could never love you in return, could never repay you. And again, I think about Romans group in the South. That's what they did. That was one of the principles. One of the things that they did is they gave to people knowing that they would never receive anything in return. When was the last time that you did that? Is that part of of the way that you live your life? And so what we have been given is not just for us to consume in our pleasure. It is not to stack up so that we never run out. And it is not only to be shared with those whom we know will be able to repay us. But now what I want to do is I want to look at an example of a a group of people that were given a a huge treasure in how they responded to that. And this was perhaps the most fortunate generation in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was the generation, unlike any other, that was poised for success. They had all the ingredients to succeed. God had given them everything that they needed. In Deuteronomy 6, we see Moses recounting history. First of all, in the book of Deuteronomy, throughout the early part of the book here, we see Moses recounting history to the second generation after Egypt. 
Now, where was the first generation? They had disqualified themselves for the promised land by disobeying, by unbelief. And so all that was left here was the second generation. And in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, we see the very well-known words imploring Israel to hear and to love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words, hear and love, are not passive words like we may think of them. When we think of the word hear, we think about doing what you're doing and listening and just hearing what's being said. But that's not what this means. This, this word hear was more of an action word with the idea of obey. And the word love was more of an action word with the idea of being devoted. And so let's look at this passage here in, in verses 4 and 5 and consider it as passages of action, as words of action. So Moses goes on to say that they are to teach the words and the commands of God to their children two ways, diligently and constantly. Diligently and constantly. I like to read verses 10 through 11, 10 through 12, and I want to see here what Moses says after that. And he says it like this, and it shall be, When the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth, out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of bondage. When you get these things that you did not provide for yourself, beware. Now fast forward to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. A number of years later, the people have entered Canaan, and under Joshua's leadership, they've conquered large portions of it. Each tribe has received his inheritance, his allotment, and they're at rest and at peace. And now the time has come for Joshua to pass from the scene. So the last passage was Moses before he passed away, and now we have Joshua preparing to pass from the scene. And so in chapter 24, Joshua assembles the tribes of Israel at Shechem, to renew the covenant. And just like Moses did years before, Joshua recounts the story of the people, starting all the way back with Terah, the father of Abraham, all the way to the present time, recounts everything that God did. And then in verses 12 through 14, let's look at that, 24, Joshua 24, 12 through 14, Joshua says this, And I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two, two kings of the Amorites, but not with my sword, nor with my bow. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them. Of the vineyards and olive yards which ye planted, which ye planted not, do ye eat. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods from your father, which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, 
and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Again, the message is basically the same. I have given you all these things. You have all these things that you, not, that you did not work for. Now, therefore, as a result of this, fear the Lord and serve him. And by all means, put away the gods of your fathers that they served all the way on the other side of the Euphrates River years ago. Did they still worship some of those gods? Apparently. But put them away. And put away the gods of Egypt. So why all the concern? Two generations here concerned about remembering the Lord. Don't Moses and Joshua trust the people? Fast forward a few years to Judges chapter 2. And I'll read verses 7 through 11. And this is not very long after. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gash. And also all the generation that were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. So here Joshua died. The people served God through the life of the elders that outlived Joshua. But get this, in verse 10, there's a generation that did not know the works of the Lord or what he had done for Israel. And they worshiped Baal, which this wasn't just a small idol. And I don't, I don't know if we can, I don't know if we can rank idols, but this was child sacrifice. That's how far they had come. How did this happen? One generation after Joshua, two generations after Moses had told them to continuously teach your children about God and what he has done for us. So what's the principle here? When you are given something, beware. Beware. The tendency is to forget God. So as we think about our interaction with culture, it is important to to remember that what God has given to us is not for our benefit only. What God has given to us is not only for our benefit. The second principle I'd like to look at is the church's role, and that being one of offense and not only defense. And we'll turn to Matthew 16, where Alvin read. It seems pretty clear that Jesus' idea of the church was one of offense right from the start here in Matthew 16. We find it clearly here. Just a little bit of history on the city of Caesarea Philippi. The tribe of Dan chose way back in the, uh, in the judges to move north rather than deal with the Philistines. And they found the location in the, in the northern part of Israel, a very lush and green place to settle. And this would have been in the area where Caesarea Philippi is. And if I understand correctly, it was in that very city, at that very place, that the golden calf was set up in Jeroboam's day. And then later on, there was sacrifices to Baal, 
detestable worship of many gods over the years. And finally, in Jesus' time, there was a, a heavy Greek and Roman influence in this city. Many pagan temples and idols, extremely immoral. Not really a place where you would expect to see a rabbi and his disciples. It's kind of like, the illustration that I would think of here is, so there's an outlet along 30, I don't even know what it's called, that, that sells beer and alcohol. And I would kind of get the feeling that the disciples of Jesus walking into Caesarea Philippi would be kind of like the feeling that one of us would get walking into that outlet store that sells beer and alcohol. It's just like, I don't fit here. I don't belong here. So I don't know exactly why Jesus took his disciples here. I think we have perhaps some indication. But it was here, in the midst of this moral decay, pagan worship, immorality, that Jesus asked his disciples what others are saying about him. And of course, there was a variety of answers. John the Baptist raised from the dead. Elijah, who was to precede, precede the Messiah. Or Jeremiah, or another prophet. But then Jesus pointedly asked them, what do you, who do you say that I am? And of course, as you can imagine, Peter spoke up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, can, and just imagine with me for a moment, Peter, in the city of Caesarea Philippi, idols, moral decay, immorality all around, saying, differentiating between those dead gods and the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. These are dead gods. You are the living God. What a confession. And of course, we see Jesus' response there. This is not something, Peter, that came from your own mind, but something that was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Peter did not come up with that statement on his own. But Jesus goes on to make an interesting statement here, and he talks about building his church on that rock, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And, and there's, an, there's various opinions about what all that means. The Catholics believe that Jesus would build the, the church on Peter, and I don't, I don't think, I think Scripture's pretty clear that that's an improper view of that statement. The Protestants would, would say that Jesus would build the church on Peter's confession, and, of course, Ray Vanderlaan has an interesting perspective on this as well, and I would encourage you to listen to that if you get the opportunity. But regardless, the reality here is that Jesus was indicating that the church would be on offense because gates are a defensive mechanism, not an offensive mechanism. So if the gates of hell cannot prevail, then hell is on the defensive and the church is on the offensive. Now, the term hell here is Hades which is the holding place for the, for the unrighteous until judgment. It's not the place of eternal, everlasting fire. But I believe the image here is that of the church rescuing people that are on their way to hell. Or you could say at the very gates of hell. And I think that's the role, one of the roles of the church. But ultimately, I believe that the point is clear, that the church is not primarily defensive, but also to be offensive in nature. But let's look a little bit farther down this passage because that's not where this conversation stops. Now, I want us to think for a moment. When Jesus thought about storming the gates of hell or about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, I wonder what he had in mind. 
What did Jesus come to do? How is he going to storm the gates of hell? What is needed for us to reach out to those who are on their way to hell and on that path? It's pretty clear that the death of Jesus and his shed blood is the way that Jesus lived that out in his own life. And and my guess here is that the disciples were excited about the idea of storming storming the gates of hell. That's that's exciting. You know, we, we can fight that battle. Let's, let's do this. Let's get excited about this. But then Jesus begins to share how he's going to do that. And in a sense, our attitude and how we do that. If we look at verse 31, Jesus goes on to tell them, to show them, how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And then in verse 22, Peter rebuked him. In a matter of of moments, Peter made a statement that came from God the Father, and then moments later made a statement that came from the devil himself. And Jesus acknowledges that both times in this passage. You see, Peter was on board with Jesus as the Messiah. Peter was excited about that, I believe. But I'm not sure that he was so excited about confronting the culture in the way that Jesus had intended. And so that leads us to the final point. Confrontation is costly. Confrontation is costly. It costs time. It costs emotional energy. It risks reputation. And it costs Jesus his life. And it will cost you your life. You can look down farther in this passage, Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Confrontation is costly. Now let's pull together some of the threads and themes and loose ends and make a few conclusions and applications So what we have been given, what we have today, what we have handed to us today, is not just for us to consume in our pleasure. It is not to stack up so that we never run out. And it is not to be shared only with those from whom we expect would be able to repay us. But beyond that, I believe that more than any generation before us, Our generation today is like the people of Israel entering the promised land. And let me just illustrate that a bit. We have houses that we didn't build. We have vineyards that we did not plant. We have wells that we didn't dig. And we have eaten and are full. And we could look at this physically and spiritually. Physically, the access to wealth, 
Technology and knowledge that, that this generation has is unprecedented. I don't think there's any question. Spiritually, we have been given unprecedented access to God's word, study helps, search tools, software, concordances, lexicons, to assist with original language and understanding the scripture. We have retreats, counseling centers, seminars, Bible schools, and Bible teaching. And beyond that, we have established churches and schools and buildings to go with them. But I fear a little bit for this generation. And I'm not talking about the youth here this morning, or even primarily about the youth. But I'm talking about my generation. Those of us that are in, let's say, the 25 to 45 age range, that generation. Because I believe there's a reason that God says when you're given these things, when you have all these things, I believe that there's a reason that he says beware. Because the tendency is that when you have eaten and are full, particularly when you haven't worked for those things or haven't worked for all of those things that you have, that you forget the Lord. There's something about being, something being handed to you that plays with your head and how you view those things. I find that I begin to convince myself that these things have always been here and I tend to fail to see the value in them. And so I want us to beware today. Our church here is over 50 years old. Is it possible that we take it for granted? Do we think it just happened or that it will continue without effort on our part? Or on the flip side, do we get so caught up in making it a great organization that we forget what its purpose is? Our school is over 40 years old. Is it possible that we take it for granted? Do we think that it just happened or that it will continue without effort on our part? Or on the flip side, do we get so caught up in making it a great organization that we forget what its purpose is? The Children's Club ministry here at Mine Road has been going for some 30 years or so. Is it possible that we take it for granted? Do we think that it just happened or that it will continue without effort on our part? Or on the flip side, do we get so caught up in making it a great organization that we forget what its purpose is? How many generations did it take for the children of Israel to forget God after they were given all these things that they did not work for? One generation. One generation. Secondly, the church's role is primarily one of offense, not only of defense. Turn with me all the way back to Judges chapter 1. In Judges 1, we see what happened in Israel prior, just prior to them forgetting the Lord. Judges 1, looking at verse 27. And we see the words, neither did. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants. Verse 28. 
Verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun. Verse 31, neither did Asher. Verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants. Neither did, neither did, neither did. They stopped the offensive. They stopped confronting the culture. And what did the angel of the Lord tell them in Judges 2, verses 1 through 5? An angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land that I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of the land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye not done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. But they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spoke these things unto all the children of Israel, that they lifted up their voice and wept. And then they sacrificed there to the Lord. So what does the angel say? I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And what happens when their gods are a snare to you? Assimilation. So confrontation is costly, but assimilation is even costlier. Now, a couple of applications for us to think about. How do we not use what has been given to us for our pleasure only? How do we not forget what God has done for us? We are to beware, and beware is also an action word. Just like here is an action word, and love is an action word. And beware means to guard, to protect, to keep, to watch. We are to be active in the action of being aware. This generation doesn't have to fail. In a sense, our generation has more opportunity to succeed because of what has been given to us. But we must beware. We must think in terms of being on offense rather than just defense. And the opportunities for us to confront are endless. You have opportunities to confront this week at your place of work, while you're traveling, or while running errands. Will you take the time? Will you have the courage? Will you this week to give to someone that you know can't, or won't be able to repay you. And we have local opportunities here. In 2017, Lancaster Online cited a source that said that Lancaster City is the immigration or the refugee capital of the U.S. 20 times more immigrants per capita than the rest of the country. Floyd mentioned in his message recently, I think it was maybe last week, the high volume of sex trafficking through our county. From 2017 to 2021, there were more human trafficking offenses filed in Lancaster County than anywhere else in the state of Pennsylvania. In addition, there's a huge need these days for child care and good education. And I'm told that the, that the demand for child care here in the state of Pennsylvania far outpaces the current facilities that are available I think we need to give that some thought because we've observed how liberal culture has taken over our colleges. What would happen 
if Christians would take over childcare. In the Old Testament, God specifically and deliberately placed the nation of Israel at the crossroads of of civilization at that time to maximize his impact through them on the world at that time, right at the crossroads of civilization. And I believe that it's no coincidence that God has placed the largest conservative Anabaptist community in the same area where there is also a large immigration population, significant human trafficking activity, and a huge need for child care. But my question for you and my question for me, and by the way, this sermon was for me today, and I just let you listen in. But my question is, what will it be? Will it be confrontation or assimilation? Because you will do one or the other. You will move in the direction of one or the other. But remember, both, both are costly. Just be aware that confronting the culture will cost you your life. But assimilating into the culture will cost you your soul. Kneel with me for prayer.